You're listening to the English Ministry Podcast of Chinese Christian Church Thousand Oaks. Join us every Sunday at 11 a.m. Find out more at english.cccto.org. Spend some time in prayer together. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time that we have to just worship you. Lord, we thank you for the baptisms, and we thank you for everything good and bad and mediocre in our lives. But Thanksgiving month is here, and we're not just thankful because you give us good things. Lord, we go beyond our selfishness and our self-interest to know that sometimes you guide us through trials to help us to grow in you. And Lord, help us to continue to reflect and seek your face upon our trials to try to understand why we're going through certain things. Lord, there are some of us who are going through trials because we have deliberately sinned against you, and we are living through the results and consequences of that sin. And maybe we are enjoying it and still continuing on with that. We pray that you would help us convict us and cause us to repent and come back to you and do things your way instead of our way. And Father, some of the rest of us, we're living righteously for you. And we're living faithfully and obedient for you every day, but yet we're still going through some type of trial. And Lord, usually that's because you're trying to teach us something. And so we thank you, Father, for regardless of what happens, the sin that is upon this world and the sufferings and the trials that we go through, you use it for your glory and also in order to help us to grow and to learn how to love you and one another. And we pray, Lord, that that end result is what will happen soon uh, to all of us who are going through certain things in our life. Father, we thank you especially today for these baptisms. We pray, Lord, that you would continue to guide these uh, four youth on towards Christian maturity. And thank you that they've taken this first step of obedience to you uh, in order to be baptized. We pray that you would provide for us, Lord. Some of us are uh, of uh, weak health and need your healing power upon us. Beyond what the doctors can do, we ask for healing. And we ask for also your provision in terms of uh, financial help and in terms of gainful employment related to the gifts that you have given us. Lord, provide for us a job that we can use the gifts you've given us for your glory as well. We thank you, Father, for this time. Guide us to continue to worship you as we go to your word right now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. Well, today... We're going to be talking about Christian zombies. And if we could get that uh, slide up on there. Uh, a lot of times we think, what zombies? What, what is that about? There's no such things as Christian zombies. Well, there actually is. For those of you who are Bible students, you know that in the Old Testament, there's a part where there's a valley of dry bones, and God speaks to Ezekiel to speak to those bones, and they reform and take bodily form and start haunting the earth. No, actually, that's not what happens. They do more than haunt the earth. It's actually a very good thing. And then there's the New Testament version of zombies that actually have significantly the similar meaning to that of the Old Testament, and it's found in these verses in Matthew chapter 27, 50 to 54. So we're going to do a scripture reading right now about what is this Christian zombie thing going on. So let's all stand as we read the scripture together in honor of God's word. I'm going to read the even, and if I can have the congregation read the odd verses. Matthew chapter 27, verse 50 to 54. 
And when Jesus had cried out again, this is in the context of his crucifixion, and when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. The tombs broke open, and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the Son of God. May God bless the reading of his word. You can be seated. Now, isn't this passage crazy? A lot of times when we go through this passage, we don't really think about it that much, but it has caused great consternation to Christians in history, and not only to regular Christians, but even to those who are scholars. So, for example, when was the last time you heard this part of the passion story told? Last month? Last year? Five years? Ten years? Any takers? I don't think anyone has. When when was the last time you heard this part of the passion story preached? Last month? Last year? Five years? Ten years? Right? Oftentimes, when we get to this part of the story, we either skip it or we quickly read it, and then we move on without much commentary. And the question must be asked is why? Why is this? Because something as sensational and as interesting as this, especially now in our day when zombie movies are all around and we're so interested in The Walking Dead, in I Am Legend, in The Last of Us, shouldn't we figure out what this is all about? You have a whole bunch of dead saints who all of a sudden rise from the grave and start visiting people that they know in the holy city of Jerusalem. I mean, doesn't that at least grant some minor commentary on it. Well, today I'm going to give you that commentary. Now, the reason why Matthew 27, 52 to 53 is often ignored is because of these four reasons. Many regular Christians are afraid to admit such a sensational-like zombie event, right? You've got a whole bunch of people coming out of their graves. They're going to visit Jerusalem. Wow, this is weird, and it's scary. And like the Roman centurion, I am terrified. Let's not talk about this because it seems to make the story of Jesus' death and resurrection sound like a horror movie. And so we don't want to talk about that, even though it was kind of horrible. It sounds kind of too scary. We don't want to talk about it. That doesn't fit into our narrative of what the passion story should be, even though it was a very scary event, the death and resurrection of Christ. I mean, the centurion when he saw not just this, but all the other events, including the death and the resurrection, was, were, was terrified and exclaimed, this must have been the Son of God. Another reason is because many Christian scholars believe that Matthew is writing figuratively here. It's metaphorical. It's metaphorical and figurative in the genre of apocalyptic literature. So it's not to be taken literally. That whole event of these guys coming out of their tombs, visiting the holy city, it was just to prop up how significant the resurrection of Jesus was. Because this is in the tone and also in the vocabulary of what's called apocalyptic literature. So think the book of Revelation. Similar things happen in the book of Revelation, but you don't take it literally. Well, maybe some of us do. 
But a lot of us don't take it literally. So when we read verses 52 and 53, it's of that same vein. It's of that same genre. It's more symbolic than is, it is literal. Another reason why a lot of people ignore it or just don't take it seriously is because many Christian theologians believe that this passage reduces the significance of Christ's resurrection. Most of us Protestants want the passion story to be a true gospel narrative. And the gospel narrative centers upon the person of Jesus Christ. His unique death and also his unique resurrection is what makes Christianity unique. That is the centerpiece of Christianity, the death and resurrection of Christ. And so that's the narrative that we're going. And all of a sudden, wait a minute, at the same time, there's a whole bunch of other resurrections of saints too, similar to Jesus. Uh, That sort of downplays the resurrection of Jesus Christ then, right? So let's just not talk about it because, you know, Jesus has to be the center. He has to be the center. So everything else, let's, let's not talk about it, right? And, I'll, and, you know, there's some truth to that. And I'm not saying that theologians and pastors are singling out certain things because they single out other things too. Did you know that during this time when Jesus was on the cross, a great darkness covered that area of the earth? But no one ever preaches and talks about that. What is this great darkness? Is there extra biblical evidence for it? What could it be? Is it a natural wonder or is it something supernatural? No one really talks about it. We just skip it and we talk about Jesus' death and resurrection because that's the centerpiece. That is the center of the gospel. We need to focus on that. Last but not least, many Christians wonder why, if true, the book of Acts does not mention any of these Old Testament saints influencing the early church. So think about it this way, and, and they have a point to this. If King David came back to life and went into the holy city of Jerusalem, wow, don't you think that would cause a stir? If the prophet Isaiah came back to life and went into the holy city of Jerusalem and talked to people, wow, the prophet Isaiah is back. King David and Isaiah is back. They still got another probably 40 to 60 years to live, they're going to influence the early church. And instead of Paul and Peter being the leader of the early Christian movement, it's going to be King David and Isaiah, born again, now leading the church movement. And Peter's like, oh, I bow to you, King David. Lead us on the way. Right? But we don't see that. There are not even, no, no great Old Testament saint is mentioned in the early church record in the book of Acts. So it just must not be, be true. Now, notice how world-renowned evangelical Christian scholar and apologist also, and I will give you my opinion of this right now, caved to these arguments when he said, question about this passage in a debate in 2007 at the University of Sheffield, commenting on Matthew 27, verses 52 to 53, he said, I'm not sure what to think. It, um, my reservation is that it could be part of the apocalyptic imagery of Matthew. This would be part of the apocalyptic symbolism to show the earth-shattering nature of the resurrection of Christ and should not be taken historically, literally. So even him, my hero, William Lane Craig, who teaches at my seminary that I graduated from, Talbot Seminary, thinks that this is symbolism and should not be taken historically, and literally, he caved, uh, he caved, all right? But that is not to say that you shouldn't listen to him. He's a really great uh, apologist and a really great defender of the faith. But to counter 
Why is it acceptable to take the resurrection of the saints, Matthew 27, 52 to 53, literally and at face value? And this is what I want to share and promote to all of you, that we should take this historically. We should take this literally. And it's this. Here are a couple of reasons. Number one, quite a few resurrections from the dead have already happened before. It's not like this is the first time someone resurrected from the dead. There are many other occasions in Jesus' life in the Gospels where we see that other people have been resurrected. For example, ever heard of Lazarus? Ever heard of Jairus' daughter, the synagogue leader's daughter? Ever heard of the son of the widow at Nain? That's probably the, the one that we've heard the least about. But yeah, there's a son of a widow at this little city in Israel called Nain who was resurrected by Jesus Christ. So if that is the case, why would these extra resurrections be hard to believe? And it's probably because these resurrections, in their opinion, take away from the unique significance of the resurrection of Jesus. But that doesn't mean that you just hide it. That doesn't mean that you just make it metaphorical or symbolic. Because there are other resurrections that have happened before in Jesus' life. Why do they not make the resurrection of Jesus less significant and less unique? Also, why would Matthew skip to the genre of the apocalyptic for just two verses when the whole of his gospel is biographical narrative? It seems to me very contrived. It seems to me that they're just making this up in order to boost Jesus or in order to try to get away from something that sounds to our cultural years a bit sensational. Now, it is true that events like this happen in the genre of apocalyptic literature, but when you read the whole of Matthew, why would Matthew write from chapters 1-1 all the way to chapter 27-51, something that's biographically historical and literal, and then jump to the genre of apocalyptic literature for just two verses, and then jump back to the genre of literal historical biography? biographical narrative from verses 54 to chapter 28, verse 20. Again, it seems a bit contrived. And when you read through those verses, it seems like it's seamless. It doesn't seem like he stops and he goes, now let me tell you a poem about dead people who rise from the grave in order to show you why Jesus Christ is so unique. There are a couple of people who are dead saints of old, and they rose, and then they went into the holy city of Jerusalem after the resurrection. Yes, So that was apocalyptic literature. Now let's go back to the story, right? There's none of that. There's just seamlessly, verse 51, 52, 53, 54, and it continues on. Third, this event would not reduce the uniqueness of Christ's resurrection because his resurrection is still unique par excellence. His resurrection is still unique in a very, very significant way. How so? Well, remember this. The uniqueness of Jesus' resurrection wasn't just in that he resurrected. We know this because other people have resurrected, right? There are people who resurrect in the Old Testament too, right? His uniqueness isn't in just his resurrection. His uniqueness is in this. It was that he resurrected himself by his own power and will after death. So the amazing thing is this. Let's say for some reason I die today, okay? Knock on wood, right? I die today, and 
I'm in, the, I'm, I'm in that in-between state before I reach the Father in heaven and the judgment seat of Christ. And I'm thinking, man, I wish Neil prayed that I would come back to life because I can't come back to my life myself. Someone needs to pray for me. Don't wait until Wednesday for prayer meeting. Please pray for me today so that the doctors who are doing CPR or the people who are doing CPR on me and then, you know, the whole Hollywood thing where they're like, oh, clear, oh, clear, oh, you know, but let's, let's, let's bring some more of that thingy thing. And then let's, let's put it in him so that he'll revive adrenaline. Oh, clear, oh, he's dead. He's dead, doctor. No, we have another chance. No, clear. Please pray for me so that after he clears one more time and I'm electrocuted for the 10th time, I will come back alive. Okay. But, oh, wait a minute. Why didn't I think of this myself? I could just will myself back into life. I have returned. Thank you for doing your best to help me out. But I just decided that in my age, I'm not ready to die yet. I I thought, you know, I'm going to just resurrect myself. And I'm back. I'm, I'm back. Okay. That, if, if I did that and you saw that, you'd be like, Peter, are, are you an angel or are you God? Right? Because no normal person can do that. But that's what Jesus did. Right? All resurrection miracles that have happened so far in the Gospels were from Jesus resurrecting them, not by them resurrecting themselves. Uniquely, Jesus resurrected himself from the dead. Let me show you a couple of Bible verses that speak to this. John chapter 2, verse 18 to 21. It says this, Then the Jews demanded of him. This is in the context of Jesus overtaking them, over, overturning the money tables and the money changers at the temple because of the fact that they were using the temple as a place for profit. And so Jesus overturns them, and he says, This house is not a den of robbers, but it should be a house of prayer for all nations. And then the Jews come disagreeing to that, and then they demanded of him, What miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. So he was literally saying, back in verse 19, Jesus answered them, destroy my body, and I will raise it again in three days. So here we see Jesus saying that he's going to resurrect himself. John chapter 10, verse 17 and 18. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay down of my own accord. I have authority. By the way, he likes Hondas, okay? Right? But I lay my body down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. So again, you see here Jesus saying something crazy, unless he was God, which, is not, which would take away that craziness, that he has the authority to give up his life and then get it back again by his own willpower. John chapter 11, verse 25 to 26, encapsulates Jesus' identity, his, self, his own self-proclaimed identity. Jesus said to her, Martha, this is the whole Mary and Martha story, I am the resurrection and the life. 
He who believes in me will live even though he dies, and whoever lives and who believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? You should be glad that Jesus was able to raise himself from the dead because it is that promise that he can promise that he can raise you from the dead when you die. Remember Romans chapter 6, the Bible verse or passage that we use for baptism, that it is because he died and he rose from the dead that you are now mystically united with him in his death and also his resurrection. So he embodies not just life, but he embodies resurrection. I am the resurrection and life. So if that is who he is in identity, I think we should be, we can logically conclude that he can also resurrect himself because he is the resurrection and the life. Now, those of you who have studied the Bible and theology go, wait a minute, but doesn't the Bible say that the Father raised Jesus? Doesn't the Bible also say that the Holy Spirit raised Jesus, right? You guys think of this all the time. You know, when, you're, when you wake up and you eat your toast and milk, you're thinking this. Because I know you guys are all astute theological biblical students, right? And you want an answer. So I'm going to give you the answer right now. Yes, you're right. And that is a hint and the fingerprint of God as Trinity. Yes, the Father was involved in the resurrection of Jesus. Yes, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit was also involved in the resurrection of Jesus. But yes, Jesus himself was involved in his own resurrection, as we see in these biblical passages. Fourth, the resurrection of the dead saints event is a partial fulfillment of a vision prophecy found in the Old Testament at Ezekiel chapter 37, 1 to 14. If, he, if these two verses, 52 and 53, were not literal, then this prophecy wouldn't make sense, okay? Not for, well, for... For partially, right? Because this prophecy had multiple fulfillments, but it really does make sense of verses 52 and 53 if it was literal, if we read this prophecy. And this is what the prophecy said The hand of the Lord was upon me, Ezekiel, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. So God is giving the prophet Ezekiel a vision prophecy. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. Okay, so dead people, right? He sees dead people. Okay, I think that's how I got it. He asked me, son of man, can these bones live? I said, O sovereign Lord, you alone know. Good answer. If God tells you something and you really don't know, you're not going to go, yeah. <laughs> and you're not going to go, no, either, because you don't want to say, uh, I don't believe in your power to make these bones live. You're, you're going to go, oh, sovereign Lord, you know, <laughs> right? Then he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you, and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. All right, this is it's getting zombieish. It's getting zombieish. Verse 7. So I prophesied as I was commanded and as I was prophesying there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together bone to bone. I looked and tendons and flesh appeared on them and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. I think this would be a great, like, scene for a horror movie turned 
something good, okay? Turn drama, right? Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe into these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath entered them. They came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. Then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Oh, okay. They said, our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. But now God is giving them hope. They are no longer cut off. And check this out. This is germane to what we're talking about today. Therefore, prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Oh, my people, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord. When I open your graves and bring you up from them, I will put my spirit in you and you will live, and I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and I have done it, declares the Lord. So sometime in the future, there's going to be graves that are open and God will put his spirit in these reformed, resurrected people, and it will be the proof that now there will be hope for Israel. And when that happens, and it happens right after, literally right after the events of Jesus' death and resurrection, yes, as those who interpret it as symbol and apocalyptic literature, it is propping up Jesus as the central figure that will give Israel back its hope. And anyone who desires to believe in God through Jesus Christ can have that same hope because of what we read here, that it's supposed to point to the significance and resurrection of the death uh, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So instead of it being something that takes away significance and uniqueness of Jesus' resurrection, it actually points to it if Ezekiel chapter 37 relates to Matthew 27, 52 to 53. Again, the prophecy perfect. The purpose of the prophecy is clearly to show Israel that God is behind their bodily reformation and resurrection, is about to do something new, is about to do something hopeful. In Matthew 27, 52 to 53, far from being unimportant, what have been seen as a partial fulfillment of Ezekiel's prophecy and a message to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which was the catalyst of this event. And it was the catalyst. Because as I said before, look at verse 53. They came out of the tombs. And after Jesus' resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. Last but not least, the reason why we can take these two verses as literal rather than symbolic imagery is this. These dead saints who came back alive do not have to be the great Old Testament saints. Why does everyone think, oh, it's Isaiah? Or, oh, it's King David. You don't name your favorite personality in the Old Testament. It's that person. You know, I want to meet Cain. I want to, I I you know, give, give uh, Abel some revenge, right? It's Cain. Oh, no, it's, it's Nehemiah, right? Because we love Nehemiah. Oh, it's, uh, it's Joash, the eight-year-old king, right? Well, why does it have to be an Old Testament saint of great renown? It could have been a well-known local saint who just recently died. Aw, right? But for them, it wasn't awe. It's, oh, my goodness, Uncle James is back, (laughs) right? Oh, my goodness, 
Auntie Gomer has returned. What, what is going on here? What, what, this is impossible. Yes, it is impossible unless something supernatural happened and it's pointing to something even greater. Remember that Jesus that you've heard about? He has risen, and I'm here to tell you about that. And this explains why they aren't mentioned in Acts, because these resurrected saints would have just blended into the culture of the New Testament church. They also would have been living examples of the resurrected power of Christ and his new work in the Christian church movement and also in the New Covenant. All right, how does Matthew 27, 52 to 53 relate to us? Thank you, Pastor Peter, for giving us a unique look into what Christian scholars believe in and what you should believe in, what other Christian scholars believe in, and giving us the arguments and a defense of what we should believe in. I will, I will think about it. How does that relate to us? All right? How does that relate to us? Thank you for giving us a great lecture on the importance of gravity. What does that have to do with us? What does that have to do with us? Well, you want to know what it has to do with us? Verse 54 tells what it has to do with us. Matthew's purpose for recording this event is shown through the eyes of the Roman centurion and those that were guarding that area of the crucifixion with that Roman centurion. Look at what the passage says again. They, the resurrected dead saints, came out of the tombs and after Jesus' resurrection went into the holy city and appeared to many people. With a centurion... And those with them who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened. They were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the Son of God. The whole purpose of this event and other events that happened during the crucifixion and the resurrection was to help people to come to a point where they need to either believe or not believe in Jesus Christ because these events are so significant that you either have to believe that something was happening that God was doing or you'd have to just deny, 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 deny and then just walk away. These are the events the Roman centurion saw who were stationed at Calvary. Pretty dramatic and pretty epic. A seemingly innocent religious leader dying without complaint. Okay, that's pretty interesting. No complaints. He's innocent. Jesus asking God to forgive those who crucified him while dying on the cross. That's really significant. Who, being crucified innocently, would ask the God to forgive those who crucified him? Jesus giving up his soul willingly, dying early, without the need to have his legs broken by Roman soldiers. Right? You know how long it takes for someone who's crucified to actually die? Days. Days of suffocation, days of agony. Crucifixion would definitely be what is considered cruel and unusual punishment. And so what they would do in order to kill him off before they would suffocate to death, they would, Roman soldiers would take a big giant mallet and they would hit the knees of those who were being crucified to break their bones so that they would not, no longer be able to lift themselves up with their legs and with their arms in order to breathe before they hung down again. They didn't have the power to lift themselves up with just their arms. They needed their, their feet, too. But without the need to even do that, which is what they did with the other two people that were hanging on the cross next to Jesus, 
Jesus gave up his soul willingly, dying early. Wow, that's, that's different. What's going on here? A strange darkness that covered the land. Just for the duration of Jesus' crucifixion. That is really weird. And remember, to us, when we see something happen like that, we're like, oh, dude, man, I think, I think something godly is happening. Think about what they're thinking back then. Whoa, what's going on, right? All these things are happening around the same time. And then a great earthquake that caused the old rock tombs around the area to crack open and the curtains of the Jewish temple to tear into pieces. The Jewish temple was the centerpiece of the Old Testament religion. The curtain that separated uh, the holy place and the most holy place was torn in two and everything, all the rock tombs opened. The, the, the ground split. You know, I was looking, I was studying how strong an earthquake it would take to do this, and it had to be at least 6 to 7.0 in the Richter scale. So it was a great earthquake that everyone felt at that time. The tomb of Jesus became empty even when the Roman guards were there to protect the body from being stolen. And then here we come to our verse. Dead Jewish people of good reputation some of which they may have known, come back to life and return to live in Jerusalem. What? Jesus' disciples reporting that Jesus had come back to life and has ascended to heaven. What is going on? What is going on here? If you were the Roman centurion, seeing these things, how would you respond? I'll tell you how you respond. You would respond by one of two ways, by admitting an epic and supernatural series of events have just occurred, and this man, Jesus, was the center of it. He probably was who he and others said he was, God in human form and the Savior of the world. And you, like the centurion, would go, oh my goodness, this guy probably was or was the Son of God. Or you would respond this way, by telling yourself over and over again that nothing happened. And trying to convince yourself that it was just another innocent religious leader that had been crucified. Nothing happened there. No, no, no. But I saw that. No, no, that didn't happen. That didn't happen. Oh, but, but look at this. Look at the, what about the earthquake and the rocks splitting up in the temple? No, that, that didn't happen. No, it's a conspiracy. You're, you're spreading conspiracies. Don't do that. You're extremists. We're going to cancel you. We're going to ban you. You're spreading conspiracies. Right? No, nothing happened. Nothing happened. The gospel writer is asking you all the same question. How will you respond to these series of incredible supernatural events surrounding the death and resurrection of Jesus? Will you deny it? Or will you believe it and like the centurion say, this must have been the Son of God. I believe it. And that is your choice today.